You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. Welcome. Uh, We are going to be back in Acts uh, today, picking up in chapter 16. And in case you missed it uh, last week or just need a reminder, we talked about how despite the fact that Christianity started with just a handful of normal people, that within 300 years, despite major persecution, that Christianity would grow from around 120 uh, people to 25 million people covering over half of the Roman Empire. And I've got a visual I can put on the screen for you, I think. Um, we should have a map, I think, of, of um, uh, let's see, 45 AD. Do we have that? Yeah, there it is. I know it's kind of blurry. Uh, it's not great quality. But where you see the little yellow dots... Uh, there by Rome and in Antioch um, and Jerusalem. This is where Christianity was in 45 AD. But fast forward to 65 AD. You see it's grown a little bit more. And then look at this. By 325 AD, this is where the Christian movement had spread to. So this is a radical, rapid spread of the gospel. What I want you to understand as you look at that map is what we are learning. And as we looked at last week, one of the key reasons the gospel spreads so rapidly is because everyday normal people like you and me, filled with the Holy Spirit, begin to embrace their identity as sent ones, as missionaries who are committed to going out and evangelizing spreading the good news of Jesus to those around them. And I think we see something like that. We hear it. We're like, that's great. But the question I want to run after this morning is what does it actually look like to live this way in 2019? What does evangelism look like? What does it look like to share the gospel on a practical level? What does it look like to meet different types of people where they are from all walks of life so that we can see more people enter into the baptism waters as we did today as a result of them experiencing the complete salvation that is found in Jesus? That's the question we're going to try to answer today. And before we dive into Acts 16, I just want to say this. If you are here and you are not a Christian, uh, maybe your friend or your neighbor or coworker has been hounding you to try to get you here and this is your very first Sunday, uh, maybe you're already sitting here and you're like, I knew it. Like, I knew it. Like, you Christians, you're always just trying to convert us. That's all you're trying to do. And to that, I just want to say, yeah. you're right. We are trying to convert you. Now, before you get mad about that and before you decide just to leave, I want you to just one moment consider this from our perspective. If we really believe that Jesus rose from the dead and we really believe that he is the the satisfaction and the salvation, the forgiveness and the freedom and the fulfillment you are longing for, then how could we not be trying to convert you, right? I mean, how could we, we not be, be doing this? And so I, I just want to say this. I mean, we're going to try to respect you. We're going to try to be kind to you. We're not going to like try to shove this down your throat. But just understand, we literally could not call ourselves your friend if we did not try to do what we're going to talk about today. Okay? For those of you in here who are Christians, I just want to encourage you to do this today. If you uh, care about your neighbors, you care about your family, you care about your friends, really pay attention today. Hopefully you pay attention every week, but really pay attention today. If you're a note taker, take some notes because we're going to look at from Acts 16, um, basically a, a practical way that we can engage with three very different types of people 
that are represented in our city. And just to set the context for you, in Acts 16, Paul is on the ultimate road trip with his friends, Silas, Luke, and Timothy. And their primary goal on this trip is to preach the gospel where the gospel has not yet been preached. And we pick up Acts 16, verse 6. It says that they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came up to Mycenae, they attempted to go down to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So this is kind of a strange uh, verse. Basically what we know is that Paul thinks he knows where he needs to go in his missionary journey. He's wanting to go to preach the gospel to a certain group of people. Uh, but what we see, we don't know if it was an audible voice. We don't know if it was a message from an angel or a text from God. All we know is that twice Paul tried to go in different directions where he thought he should go, and yet the Holy Spirit of Jesus thwarted him and kept him from going that direction. So in verse 8, it says, Passing by Messiah, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Um, one of the reasons I love this passage is because so many times in my life I could relate to this experience. Times where like Paul and his friends, despite trying to do the right thing, despite trying to, to do my best to follow Jesus, I feel like I get shut door after shut door. Right? Times in my life where I'm convinced God wants me to go this place or to do this thing, and yet despite the fact that all I'm trying to do is say yes to God, it seems like God is saying no to me. And if you've ever been there, you know that it's in these frustrating moments in your life, it's so easy to want to throw in the towel and say, just forget it, God, because we feel like God has clearly forgotten us. But the reality is what we learn right here is that even when we feel like God is not at work in our lives, the reality is he is right there and he is at work. And if we will continue to trust him, listen, please hear me today. If you will continue to trust Jesus, what you will discover is that he will use even those no's and those closed doors to direct you and lead you into something better than you could ever imagine, which is what we're going to see right here. Look in verse 11. Setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down. We sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. So Paul and his friends, right, they are now in the city of Philippi. They walk into a prayer meeting in hopes that they will be able to share the gospel with these people who are there. And while they are there, we are introduced to this woman named Lydia. And here's what we know about Lydia. What we know about this woman is that she is a wealthy business person who works in the fashion industry. And we see here she's a worshiper of God, which was a technical term that just meant she was a God-fearing woman. However, what we learn here is despite the fact that this woman would have known the Hebrew scriptures, despite the fact she would have read the Old Testament, despite the fact that she is a religious and a respected woman, she is not a follower of Jesus. And so how does she come to Christ? How is she saved? Well, according to verse 14, it says, while Paul was talking about who Jesus is and how he fulfills the Old Testament, how he is the one whom she needs, it says in verse 14, look at this, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. 
In other words, and please get this, Lydia's heart was not open because she responded to the gospel. She responded to the gospel because her heart was opened. She responded to the gospel not because Paul was able to persuade her, but she she, uh, was open to the gospel because God transformed her heart. This is what theologians refer to as the doctrine of regeneration. And the reason it's so important, and the reason I want to draw attention to this this morning, is because what I want you to understand, when we look at this verse, what you need to get today is when it comes to living as a sent one, as a missionary, it is your job to share the gospel. It's God's job to save people. Right? It is your job. Right? You are not a salesman or a saleswoman who has to go out and convince people that Jesus really is good news. You are just a messenger who goes and shares the gospel with others. And what that means is, look, you just go out, you have gospel conversations and trust the power of the Spirit. There will be gospel conversions. God will bring this about. So what that means then is as we sit back in anxiety and fear and saying, oh, I can never really do this. Look, the pressure's off. There's no pressure on you whatsoever when it comes to the conversion of other people. You and I can do this. We can be faithful to go and share the gospel, and we can do this in confidence knowing that salvation rests not on you but on God. That's what we see right here. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said. The word that is used here for pay attention is the same Greek word that is used for addiction. Which means when God opened her heart, she saw who Jesus really is. And when you see who Jesus really is, he becomes irresistible. I mean, this is a woman whose business was beauty, and yet she had never seen a beauty like this. And so what does she do? She said, I'm going to surrender my life to Christ. And we know she did this because just as we see what happened just now, right? She was baptized in verse 15, and then she opened her home for ministry. All right, it's a really crazy story, but it gets even crazier than this. Look at verse 16. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So this girl is the exact opposite of Lydia. What we know about this girl, she's probably 10 to 14 years old. She's a slave girl which means she's busted up, she's abused, she's basically been prostituted by her her owners. Uh, She is not heading to a prayer meeting, but instead says she has a spirit of divination, which means this girl is not simply mentally ill. Like she has a demon inside of her. And if you're here and you're like, oh, come on, Jared, like you really believe that in 2019 with all the technology that we have, that this girl actually had a demon inside of her? What I would say is absolutely And I think you would be naive not to believe something like this. Um, Andrew DeBacle, who wrote a book a few years ago called The Death of Satan, he's a professor and a secular person. Here's what he said. Modern people have underestimated the power and complexity of evil. Our sanguine theories of simplicity, manageability, and controllability of evil, therefore, have left us completely unprepared for this reality. Put another way. If you have a scientific worldview that says everything you see can be explained scientifically. For example, if you see things like this slave girl and you say, well, clearly this is just psychological or sociological or medical, right? If you think everything has a scientific explanation and therefore, if we're going to make the world a better place, all we need is just better therapy or better medicine or change social structures, then all of our problems would go away. If you believe that, then DeBoncle is right in saying you are underestimating the power and the complexity of evil that exists around us. Um, a couple weeks ago, 
Uh, one of the ladies, Muslim ladies that we've been working with, her name is Hafiza. Um, her and her husband uh, came by to the office. Uh, Tamara is his name. I think we have a picture of them we can put up on the screen maybe. Um, and uh, yeah, there they are. Hafiza just kept telling her husband, Tamara, I need Pastor Jerry to pray for me. She was having pain on the left side of her body. And so he brought her to our office. She was laying out um, in the back of a van. Hannah, who's one of our office managers, uh, went to the door, opened the door for him. We went, laid him down on a back couch in the conference room. And I said to Hafiza, she doesn't speak English, but she's talking to her husband. He's talking to me. He was our, kind of a translator. I said, hey, there's one of three reasons why you're experiencing this pain. Uh, one is because we just live in a fallen, broken world, and, and that stuff just happens. Uh, two is maybe because of unconfessed sin in your life that God wants you to give to him. Or three is p- possibly there's a demon uh, who's ca- that's causing this. And I said, do you sense it's one of those three things? And she, and she said... I have been seeing a man in red. I've seen him in my house. I've seen him in my dreams. I even saw him at Walmart, and he told me that he's attached to me and causing that pain. And I said, okay. I said, well, here's what we're going to do. I said, if this is, if this is demonic activity, I said, um, we are going to, in the, in the power and authority of Jesus Christ, tell this demon to tell us his name, because he has to. And so I just said, hey, in the power and authority of Jesus Christ, tell us your name. And she said, Carl. Which I thought first, like, well, that's anticlimactic. Like, Carl. It's like, it's like, we are legion! You know, it's like, that's what I was thinking, like, death! It's like, I think the Lord just knew I could only handle Carl. And so, and so, uh, I, uh, which, by the way, what's interesting, the next morning I was still so confused by this. It was kind of like the Monty Python and the Holy Grail skit. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody the Monty Python and the Holy Grail? They go, they're like, mighty enchanter of the forest, what is your name? And he's like, some call me Tim. And it's like, that's what it felt like. Anyways, um, I, I, I was Googling Carl the next day. It's like Carl name meaning. It brought up a baby website, and literally it said this. You can't make this up. Carl means a strong man in the Middle Ages that always referred to a villain or a slave. And then uh, the, the, the website right underneath that was Urban Dictionary. It's like, why is Carl an Urban Dictionary? And on Urban Dictionary, Carl means the Messiah, the one and only, the future of humanity. Can't make that up. And so whatever, Carl, you know, whatever. So I said, okay, so we're just going to tell Carl to leave in the name of Jesus Christ. So I lay hands on her, and I said, in the name of Christ, I command you, Carl, to leave. And immediately the pain goes from, she's all up here to her lower back, but she said she feels this happiness and, and this peace, but she still has pain in her lower back. She just rolls over, lay hands, and when again, we just say, and, and the authority of Jesus Christ to leave. Immediately she gets up off the couch, starts walking around, her husband starts crying and going, I see it with my own eyes. I can't believe it, right? Great opportunity to point to, like, look, this is Jesus. Like, this is what he does. And the reason I share all of that is just to say, look, there is an evil out there that is not natural, not explainable. It's not simply human. Uh, sometimes it is not just a matter of, well, my mom and dad didn't raise me right, and that's why I feel this way. Or it's just because the doctor said I have a heart issue, and that's just all there is to it. There is something sometimes going on that is much worse than that, much worse than that. And that's what we see happening right here. This girl has a demon. It's on verse 17. She follows Paul and she's crying out or she's shrieking out. These men are servant of the most high God who proclaim the way of salvation. So is she attracted to the gospel or repelled by it here? Both, right? She's kind of like Smeagol in Lord of the Rings. Like it's my precious, but I hate it, right? I mean, that's what's going on here. And then look at this, verse 18. She kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. This is one of the many reasons why I believe that the Bible is not made up. Because nobody would put this in the Bible if you're trying to convince people that Paul's some great dude. Like, notice in here, it doesn't say in verse 18 that Paul, full of great compassion. 
right? Or, 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 or Paul softly and tenderly stroked her hair and said, daughter of Eve, right? Like, no, it says Paul, greatly annoyed, was like, enough is enough. Demon, get out of her in the name of Jesus. And immediately the demon leaves. And then as a result of this verse 19, it says, when her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, listen to this testimony. These men are Jews and they're disturbing our city, right? They're transforming the city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off of them and gave the orders to beat them with rods. Look at this, verse 23. And they inflicted many blows upon them, and they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. So now we're about to meet person number three, who is the Philippian jailer. And who is the jailer? Well, what we know about jailers are usually these are highly decorated Roman soldiers who were given a jail as a retirement gift. So this is an older guy. He's battle tested. He's blue collar. He's hardened and he's cynical because the things that he has seen. And so he gets custody of Paul and Silas, verse 24. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison. This is the lowest, most internal part of the prison. It was the place reserved for the worst prisoners. It's where the urine and the fecal matter would just run down. So this is a dark, dank, and disgusting part of the prison. He puts them in the inner part of the prison, then he fastened their feet to stalks. So this is not only a security measure, by the way, this is a torture device. And then in verse 25, how did Paul and Silas respond? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. I read that this week and it made me think of Psalm 112 verse 11 that said, the righteous are not afraid of bad news. These guys have no idea what's coming next. Are we going to be killed? Are we going to be tortured some more? Are we going to be kept here for who knows how long? Who knows? But they're not afraid of bad news. It doesn't mean they don't think bad news is coming. It just means they know no matter what comes, it cannot destroy them because they have Christ. And therefore, rather than cursing God, they're singing and they're suffering. They're praying and they're praising God in their pain. And as a result of this, it says the prisoners were listening to them, or the word used there could say are, were amazed by them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundation of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And then the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, and he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Why? Because in the first century, if a jailer let the prisoners go, he himself would be executed. So he's thinking, rather than let myself go into the hands of the Romans, I'm just going to take my own life. And so he's about to kill himself. And then look at this in verse 28. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, in your face. And then he ran off. (laughs) Is that what he said? That's what I would have said. How you like me now, right? But instead... Paul cried out with a loud voice. This is crazy to me. Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Why? Why are you there? Paul, you've got freedom on your right hand, and you've got a cruel jailer who just beats you on your left hand. Why are you there? This is amazing to me. Because Paul and Silas, just like Jesus Christ, rather than looking to their own interests, they look to the interests of this man. They say, you know what? 
We are willing to put our own lives on the line for the sake of saving your life. And as a result of them being willing to give up their physical freedom, this man is so blown away by this act of grace that it leads to his own spiritual freedom. Look at verse 29. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, trembling with fear, and he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then they brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And then in the most simple answer that Paul could give, he said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. I read this this past week, and I couldn't help but think about Charles Spurgeon, uh, who was a great preacher in London in the 1800s. Uh, he actually personally baptized 15,000 people in his lifetime. He uh, planted over 53 churches. Um, he was preaching to 20,000 people by the time he was 25 years old. He's one of the greatest preachers of all time. His, his sermons are still in the circulation today. And he tells in his book about his conversion story, whenever he was, I think, probably 15 years old, somewhere around there. And he said he was under deep conviction of sin until one Sunday morning on January 1850, a snowstorm forced him to cut his intended journey and turn into a Methodist, a Methodist chapel. And he said he walked in there, there's only like 12 people in there. And the pastor wasn't even there because he was snowed in. But then apparently the people are like, hey, we're here, somebody's got to preach. And so Spurgeon says, a simple man, being persuaded by the few, went up to the pulpit. Despite the fact this guy had never preached and didn't have anything prepared, he opened up to Isaiah 45 two, which says, Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. The man then went on and Spurgeon says, he said, This is a very simple text indeed. It says, Look. Looking don't take a great deal of pain. It's just look. And man doesn't need to go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. And here's what Spurgeon says in his book. I love this. He says, when the man had managed to spin out for 10 minutes or so, he came to the end of his tether. In other words, a young Spurgeon was like, this guy's awful. Like, he's really having a hard time preaching this message. It's like, after he had spin out for a while, not really knowing where he came to the end of his tether. But then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. So, like, imagine you come into the room at your first son, there's only 12 people, and I'm like, clearly that's a guest, right? Spurgeon's like, oh, there was no hiding, right? And look at this. Fixing his eyes on me as if he knew my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to having remarks made about me from the pulpit about my personal appearance before. That's funny to me. However, it was a good blow, and it struck right home. He continued, And you will always be miserable, miserable in life, miserable in death, if you do not obey my text. But if you obey it now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then, the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Isn't that awesome? On that day, Charles Spurgeon found out that if you want to be saved, you don't have to clean yourself up first, you don't have to try harder to be better, you don't have to do a list of 50 things, you simply need to look to Jesus You simply need to, in the words of Paul, believe that Jesus is Lord. And as a result, rather than just trying to give him your afterlife, you give him this life as well. You come with the good, the bad, the ugly, the questions, the fears, the doubts, your past, present, and your future. And when you do, you will be saved. 
you'll be saved. That's what we see happen right here. In verse 32, it says, They spoke the word of the Lord to the jailer and to all who were in his house, and he took them that same hour of the night, and he washed their, their wounds. So now he's compassionate. And he was baptized. He was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them. By the way, one mark of true Christianity is people opening up their homes to others. It's hospitality. That's what we see with Lydia. That's what we see right here. They brought him into the house, set food before them, and he rejoiced. The real Jesus brings joy. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So again, another crazy story. Starts with Lydia, it goes to the slave girl, and then we have the conversion of the jailer. And surely, right, lots of people came to Christ in Paul's ministry in time in Philippi, but it is these three stories that Luke wants us to think about today. And the question that I want to answer, and then we'll be done, is what do these conversion stories tell us today? Why are they here? Right? What is it that we are to take away from these specific accounts? And just two things very quickly. The first thing I would say that we take away from Acts 16 is the reality that everybody needs the gospel, and the gospel is for everybody. I'm not sure if you noticed this again, but you could not have three people who are more different than Lydia, the slave girl, and the jailer. I'll put this on the screen for you. But racially, Lydia was an Asian, the slave girl was a Greek, and the jailer was a Roman. Economically, Lydia was an upper class, slave girl was in lower class, and the jailer was middle class. Socially, Lydia was popular, the slave girl was an outcast, and the jailer, again, was just kind of in the middle. Spiritually, Lydia was open, the slave girl was hostile, and the jailer was indifferent. He could care less about the gospel or about spiritual things. Relationally, the way that you would actually have perceived them, Lydia was gentle, the slave girl was mental, and the jailer was brutal. And what this reminds us, again, listen, please hear me, there is no Christian type. You ever heard that? I'm not the Christian type. There is no Christian type. We have all sinned, we have all fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore we are all a bunch of imperfect people who are standing in need of one perfect person together, and that person is Jesus Christ. And so please hear me. I don't know who you are or where you come from or how far you think you have fallen. If you will look to Jesus today, if you will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you're rich or poor, young or old, black or white, whether you come from a good family or a bad family, whether you're religious or irreligious, you don't have to go to hell. You can be saved. And that's what we see right here in Acts 16. Secondly, and finally, what we see in here is Acts 16 is for us, I think, to give us a glimpse of different people in our city and how we are to reach them, how we are to reach them. The truth is, just as we see three different people in the city of Philippi, I believe we have three different types of people in our city and region today. We have some who are like Lydia, who are spiritually interested. We have some like the slave girl who are spiritually hostile. And then we have some of like the jailer who are just like, honestly, I just really don't care. They're spiritually indifferent. So the question is, how do we best engage these three very different types of people with the gospel. And this is where I would take notes if I were you, if you have not, right? What is the approach that we take if we want to see these types of people converted? First, the Lydias of the world, those who are spiritually interested. When Paul meets Lydia, we discover that she is a moral religious woman who is familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. In our context today, the Lydias of our time are those who probably grew up in church, or for whatever reason, they are at least open to spiritual conversation. So what is needed to help lead these people to Christ? Well, what they need is what we call a truth encounter, a truth encounter. When Paul meets this woman, 
Where was she? She's at a prayer meeting. And the way she came to Christ was through the Apostle Paul showing her through the scriptures how Jesus is the one who fulfills the law. He opens up the Bible and he shows her how forgiveness of sins is found not in her work, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ on her behalf. In other words, he appeals to her logically through a truth claim. In light of that, what that means for us is that if we want to engage the religious but lost in our city, typically it's going to be through a truth encounter that God will use to bring people to faith. And practically, here's what this means. Uh, This happens through three ways. It happens through a Bible study. Through you just calling somebody and saying, hey, I would love for us just to go through the scriptures together. And you don't have to be a scholar to do this. This is super easy. We do it in our DNAs. It's just sitting down with somebody, picking maybe a book of the Bible, reading a few verses and saying, hey, let's just read it and let's see like what image or what verse or what words stuck out to me. Reading it again and just saying, okay, like now why do you think this stuck out? And then reading it again and saying, okay, what do you think that God's calling you to do in light of that? I mean, it's just that simple. There's all sorts of ways to study the scripture that are not rocket science, right? Another way that you can do this is through a book study. The Lydia's of the world love a good book study. Go get a book like The Reason for God by Tim Keller or The Gospel by J.D. Greer and say, hey, would you just like to sit down and talk through this? Me and Megan were talking last night about one of the Muslim women uh, women that uh, we've been working with named Muna. And we just said, hey, wouldn't it be awesome just to say, you know what, you bring the Quran, we'll bring the Bible, you can read something from the Quran, we'll read something from the Gospels, and let's just pray about it and talk about it. Right? Like usually spiritually interested people will do this. Or another simple way to try to help bring people to Christ who are spiritually interested is, guess what? Inviting them to something like this. Or inviting them to your MC meal where you have a discussion. Why does an invitation work for them? Because they're open. Right? They don't want to go to hell. They do believe there's a God and they're just waiting for an invitation from somebody. Right? So that is a truth encounter. But what about The other two, what about the slave girl? What about the jailer? What about those who are hostile or indifferent? How do we reach them? Well, when it comes to the slave girl, who again is spiritually hostile, what we see is that when Paul meets her, she is in physical and spiritual captivity. She is in bondage. And so how does Paul help connect with her? Well, it's through what we call a power encounter, a power encounter. What happens in this story is Paul recognizes that something demonic and oppressive is going on below the surface in this little girl's life. And therefore, Paul, through the power of Jesus, is able to free this enslaved girl from her wicked master. He is able to rescue her from the domain of darkness so she can experience life in the kingdom of God. And listen to me, I know what I'm about to say is going to make some of you uncomfortable. Like anything else I'll say, go read it for yourself. Look in the scriptures. If I'm wrong, come and tell me later. But if you're going to reach the the, the slave girls of the world, oftentimes what we need is a power encounter. And and I think there are several ways this takes place. First, it happens through signs and wonders, just like we see right here in our text. There's signs and wonders. We see it in Acts 16. We've seen it with Hafiza, even, the woman that I was with. Whenever her husband's just like, I see it with my own eyes. And it was a great opportunity to say, like, yeah, that's Jesus. Um, it happens through counseling. This is whenever you actually sit down with somebody, you dive into their story, and you help them see how because of maybe wounds they've received or generational sin or whatever, right, you help them see how there are lies they have been believing that is fed by the enemy that is causing all sorts of issues in their life. It's a below-the-surface deep dive that takes a supernatural work of the Spirit in order to uncover. Uh, Another thing that we see as a power encounter that works is prophecy. 
Um, and prophecy is just, it's a gift that we believe God gives to the church, um, which is just a simple, direct spiritual word or instruction or encouragement where you say something and they know there's no way you could have known that about me. There's no, how did you know that? And it gives you an opportunity again to point to God. And finally, I would say through dreams. Um, Hafiza, who was in my office, another part of the story with her is I've been reading uh, lately about how Muslims have been coming to Christ throughout the world by, um, through dreams. Like Jesus has been revealing himself to them through visions and dreams. And so at one point in our conversation, I looked at Hafiza and I said, hey, uh, I know you've been seeing a man in red, but have you by chance seen a man in white? And she said, oh, yes. She goes, actually, he came to me in Ethiopia, and he told me I was in danger and needed to move to America. And I said, well, I'm pretty sure that's Jesus, Hafiza. And he's calling you to trust him and to follow him rather than Allah. And again, through language barrier and all that, I mean, she was just like, yes, and, and it was in agreement. I don't know what God's doing there, but the point is she could not deny that she had seen a man in white. How did I know that? And what is really going on in that moment? That's called a power encounter. And oftentimes this is what God will use to help bring people like a slave girl to Christ. Finally, what about the Philippian jailer? What about those who are spiritually indifferent? The Philippian jailer, when we meet him, right, he's not a monster like the slave girl, nor is he moral like Lydia. He's just a middle-of-the-road, blue-collar, hard-working dude who's just honestly kind of yawns at the gospel. He's just pretty indifferent to Jesus. So how do we engage people like this with the gospel? Well, it's through what I would call a community encounter. A community encounter. I think of that line that Paul shouted out right before the jailer was about to kill himself, where he said, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. That phrase, we are all here, is the example of a community encounter. It's an example of the church being the church. It's an example of Paul and Silas, the people of God, extending the grace and mercy of God to a man who does not deserve it in a real and tangible way. And as a result of this display of love, because it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance, the jailer's heart is melted. It's melted. He looks and he says, I, I, look, I recognize obviously you guys have a power that I don't have. This whole earthquake thing and all that, but that's not what converts him. What converts him is he looks and he says, what's different between you and me is I use my power to oppress people and imprison people, and you use your power to free people. Man, I want what you have. What must I do to be saved? On a practical level, what does this mean for us? Well, what it means is if we're going to reach the jailers of our city, those who are just indifferent to the gospel, it happens through a few things. I would say this is not an exhaustive list, but one, through sharing a meal in the name of Jesus. Just buying a meal for someone who's far from God. It happens through serving for the sake of meeting practical needs and also looking for opportunities to extend grace in a performance-based culture. We have a culture that as soon as you screw up, will eat you alive. And in a community, in a faith-based culture, man, whenever you see someone fall, it's a great opportunity to say, I'm not pushing you away, but I've got arms wide open to show you the grace and mercy that God has extended to me. I was uh, sitting with a Muslim man um, about a month ago uh, named Smile, who we work with, and I was, he's, he's a welder at ARI, and uh, he was sitting in my lunch, or sitting in my truck, I taking him some lunch. And the night before, we were reflecting on how his family wanted to bring their son to our MC meal so we could celebrate his birthday. And they said, you guys are the only family we have around here, and so could we, could we celebrate my son's birthday together? And I, if we had time, I'd show the video, but we're all singing happy birthday to him as a missional community, and I mean, their son's just smiling, he's beaming from ear to ear. The parents are happy. 
And I'm sitting there with uh, Smile in the truck, and he starts breaking down and crying. I mean, here he is, his welding clothes. I mean, tough dude. I used to be in a gang, and he says, man, I've never in my life experienced a family. He goes, you guys are more of a family to me than I've ever had in my whole life. And he said, I don't even know how to explain it. He goes, I don't know what's going on, but I feel a love from you guys I've never felt before in my life. Here's a guy who came to America whenever he was 15, never knew his dad, barely knew his mom, joined the African gang, was in and out of prison. He is a hardened individual, but his heart is being softened by the love that he has seen displayed for him through a community. And I believe he's going to come to Christ someday. I really believe that. And so to summarize this morning, listen, you have Lydia, you have a slave girl, you have a jailer. You have three different people that reminds us that everybody needs the gospel and the gospel is for everybody. And a lot of this morning as we close, listen, I want you to know it doesn't matter what you think your biggest need is, Jesus can meet that need. Jesus is beautiful enough for Lydia, he's powerful enough for the slave girl, and he's merciful enough for the hardened jailer. And therefore, no matter who you are or where you come from, he is enough for you. And I pray today that just as we saw the six people entering through the baptism waters as a, as a testimony to the fact that their life has been changed by Jesus, I pray if you've never given your life to Christ, it's a day it would be that day. And if you want more information about that, I'll be standing up here. Uh, Adam will be here. I know Chuck's up here. Uh, Luke as well. We'd love to talk to you. All that being said, I invite you to stand as the band comes forward. I'll pray for us. We'll partake of communion. Sing a song and we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much. Man, thank you, Father, so much that we get a chance to, to have a front row seat to seeing lives being transformed today through the baptism service. Oh, God, you are still moving. You are still saving people. I just, and we saw it today from all walks of life. It's incredible to me. God, increase our faith. Help us to be a church who embraces our identity as sent ones who go out into this world to proclaim the gospel, trusting that truly in your sovereignty that you will open the hearts of people so they can pass from death to life. I pray for the person who is here right now who possibly does not have a personal relationship with you, who maybe has given you their afterlife but not this life, that they would surrender everything to you. They would see you as the Lord of their life. Father, I pray that through the time of communion as we tear off the piece of bread and we dip it in the juice, that we would be reminded all over again of your grace and your mercy in our own lives. That we are good enough not because of anything we've done, but as Catherine talked about her testimony, we're good enough, Jesus, because of what you've done on our behalf. Help us to remember that we are forgiven and we are freed. And from that place, go out and proclaim your message. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.